all of us benefit from exercise in terms of our cognitive performance. We, we have yet to find an age group that doesn't benefit, right? Everybody benefits. But it certainly makes sense that in children whose brains are developing so rapidly and in older adults who unfortunately their brains are starting to show some signs of age, in those two ends of the continuum, exercise can be particularly important because it is giving the body, the brain, the physical stimulus that it needs to improve brain health. And so to me, um, it's really fascinating to look at children because developmentally they are likely to benefit more from exercise than a perfectly healthy young adult who's in the prime of his or her life, right? And it's also fascinating to look at people um, who are in middle age, older age, um, who are starting to see age-related declines in their ability to think and perform activities of daily living and things like that. For those individuals, exercise is also fantastically important. Hi, I'm Pete McCall. Welcome to this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast. That voice you heard in the beginning is a guest for this episode, Dr. Jenny Etnier. Before I get into the full introduction, I want you to take a, th- take a moment and think about one of the more, I don't, I don't like to use the word famous, but one of the more well-known people in America right now. Think of one of the more well-known people in America right now who might be in question about his cognitive ability, about his state of whether or not he's developing early onset dementia or has dementia. Of course, I'm talking about President Trump. If you're regular, if you're regular listening to the All About Fitness podcast, you know that I don't share the same politics as Trump. And I have many, many judgments about, about the person holding the White House, holding the office of the White House. I understand not everybody might feel the same way. That's fine. But the one thing that we can all be concerned about President Trump with is the fact that, and, and this is outside of my scope of practice, I am not, A, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical doctor. B, I don't even play one on TV. C, I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. So I don't, I don't have any qualifications at all to make, uh, to make this diagnosis. There are many people much smarter than me. There are many people that are qualified to make that diagnosis that are afraid that the president might be developing dementia. And one of the things that we know about Trump is that Trump does not like to exercise. And, and let me qualify this. Riding around in a cart to swing a stick is not exercise. President Trump is well known. I spoke about this. I did an episode a number of uh, maybe two or three years ago with Dr. Petrozella about Trump's disdain for physical activity. Trump believes, and this was, a, this was a belief many years ago, Trump believes that exercise takes year, takes time off your life. There was a thought out there once upon a time that exercise can actually take time off the life. I mean, that's been disproven on so many different levels. So Trump is famous for his lack of exercise, his lack of regular physical activity. And in fact, he's one of the first presidents going back years, going back to maybe before Eisenhower, I think, was before Kennedy. Ever since John F. Kennedy, and I'm not sure about Johnson or uh, or Nixon, but most of the presidents in the last 50 years have been parag- have been great examples of fitness. Reagan, H.W. Bush, Clinton would attempt to jog. You know, you, Clinton would at least make the attempt to jog. George W. Bush was an excellent example of fitness. Obama, whether or not you like his politics, Obama stayed active and exercised as fitness. But now we have a president that doesn't. He disdains exercise as he disdains a lot of other things like reasonable thought. But we won't go there. 
But one of the reasons why that's relevant is that what science is showing, what the research is showing, is that regular exercise, regular physical activity could delay the, the, the onset of dementia. Regular exercise could, delay to, could greatly reduce the risk of developing Alzheimer's. That's why I wanted to speak with Dr. Jenny Etnire. Dr. Etnire is a researcher. She is a professor of kinesiology at University of North Carolina, Greensboro. And one of the areas that she researches is on how exercise affects cognitive function. And not just in older adults. We start off talking about kids. Her research covers kids, young adults, middle-aged adults, older adults. And as you hear us talk about in this episode today, that there's a direct, there's a direct correlation between physical activity and how your brain works, right? And that's one of the, that, that, so when I got, to let you in beside, behind the scenes a little bit, I get pitched pretty regularly, like one or two pitches a day from PR people. Hey, do you want to have this guest on here? Do you want to have this guest on here? Most of those I turn down because I don't think they're relevant. They're promoting some kind of product. They're promoting maybe a form something of where I'm like, eh, no thanks, but no thanks. That's not right for, for my guests, for my listenership. But when I saw Dr. Jenny Etnire's CV, when I saw what she focused on, she studies how exercise affects our brain. I knew I wanted to have her on, partly because I had Dr. John Medina on recently. I had him on as a guest a couple episodes back. And Dr. Medina wrote the book, Brain Rules for Aging Well. And Dr. Etnire is doing similar research. She's conducting the research on how exercise affects cognitive function at all ages. And that's the type of thing, because the purpose of this podcast, if you're a new listener, is I don't talk about fitness from a standpoint of, yeah, get a big chest or get six-pack abs or blow out those guns or get a big booty. I don't care about that. There are other people doing those type of podcasts. If that's what you want to listen to, go for it. Go, go find somebody else. But I want to have a conversation. What I want to talk about on this podcast, the guests I want to have conversations with are the people doing the research. And you're going to hear us talk about that a little bit, about what that research means and why you should pay attention to it. But I want to talk about the people doing the research to understand how exercise changes our body. So if you're an avid exerciser, an avid fitness junkie, you know what's happening to your body when you exercise. I mean, yeah, we know all the stuff like we're burning calories, building muscle. But exercise changes the biochemistry in your body. Exercise can change everything from your, you know, the, the smallest cells on up. That's why I want to have Dr. Etnire on as a guest. Now, if you're looking for ways that exercise can change your body, if you need ideas for how you need to stay in shape, if you know you need to be active and you go, what do I do? What do I do in the gym? What can I do at home? Check down below in the show notes. I have three workout programs. I have a dumbbell workout program. I have a kettlebell conditioning program. I have a core training program. Each program has the main workout and each program also has a recovery workout along with suggestions and guidelines for what you should do for HIIT training, high intensity interval training. Each program is each eight week program becomes progressively challenging. Each program is priced less than $20. So for the price of a couple fitness magazines, you get a full program, you get a ton of information because you know me, I'm an information geek. Not only do you get a workout program that becomes progressively more challenging to help you change your body, but you get a lot of other information on recovery. How do you structure the workouts? How do you build the workouts in a week? How do you follow the workouts? If you're looking for those solutions, check down below the show notes, less than $20, and you get an eight-week program. Another option is you can check out my, my resource, Dynamic Anatomy. I recorded a webinar that, that and it comes with an ebook that teaches you what you need to know about how your muscles function when you move. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, if you enjoy what you hear about on All About Fitness and you want to support the podcast, I'm never going to put it behind a paywall. I'm not going to take advertising money, but I'm going to be giving you content, making content available for you that can support and enhance your quality of life. Check down below in the show notes for those options. If you want other options, I'll have that below in the wrap-up after the interview. But with that said, this is a fascinating interview with a leading researcher understanding how exercise affects the brain. Also, she has two books on coaching, specifically coaching kids, and we talk about that. So if you have a kid who's playing sports, if you coach a kid who's playing sports, listen to this conversation because we talk about some things that you should know when you coach your kids. So with that, this is a fun and fascinating conversation with Dr. Jenny Etnire, Professor of Kinesiology at University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Jenny Etnire, a kinesiology professor at the University of, University of North Carolina, Greensboro. How are you doing today, doctor? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. And, and it's okay if I call you Jenny? Yes, please. That'd be great. Okay. And I, we talked about this a little bit beforehand. And I, I'm from, I was actually born in Greensboro in Alamance, uh, Alamance County Hospital. Are you from the North Carolina area? Is that where you grew up? I'm actually from Knoxville, Tennessee, right next door, um, but I've spent a lot of time in North Carolina. I got my master's degree at UNC Chapel Hill, was a faculty member at Wake Forest University, and now have been at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro for 15 years. Oh, wow. And because I just, it's been years since I've been back in that neck of the woods. And, and as a kid, we used to go down to Emerald Isle for the beach in the summer. And I just have wonderful, I mean, Greensboro is a great place to live and a great place to raise kids, right? Oh, it's such a beautiful area. It's not, it's not called Greensboro because it's green, <laughs> but it is, in fact, a very green place with just so many beautiful deciduous trees and a lot of parks and open spaces that have been really well protected. So it's a, it's a neat place to live. This uh, podcast today brought to you by the Greater Greensboro Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> no, but, but I mean, it's just, it's one of those, qual- it's like that quality of life, you know, and it, it's that quality of life thing that people I think really enjoy and really look, they overlook that when you're in college. How, so when you ended up there, what, what track were you on? How long did it take to become a full professor? Oh boy, that's quite a path. Um, it, it, when you're a professor, you're an assistant professor for usually about six years. And then if you are promoted, you then are typically tenured. And then you could be an associate professor until you retired. Nothing has to change after that. Um, But for me, it was about six more years before I went up for a professor. And then um, I'm really honored that I was actually named a distinguished professor last year, which um, really means I, I can just be done now. I can just hang out. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, but, but to do that, how does one become, do you, how much research, I mean, is it involved with research? Is it involved with publishing? What, what's involved with becoming like a full professor and then to get that, to receive that distinguished professor credential? Yeah, that's, that's a fun question. I mean, uh, in the university where I am at UNC Greensboro, it's largely based on your scholarship. And um, so people who are tenured and then people who are promoted are typically people who have very active research agendas um, and are publishing, yeah, publishing quite a bit, getting, getting the word out about what, what their research is telling us. Interesting. The, the question I had, I recently spoke with a friend of mine who's a professor at San Diego State University, and I'm on the adjunct. Every now and then, if they, if they have a class where 
like it's usually the entry level class or a lab where they need covered. They pull me in and I'll teach a class there for a semester. So I'm not a distinguished professor. And anytime, anytime the students call me a professor, I'm like, yeah, you don't need to do that. You just call me uh, Mr. McCall or just call me Pete. And I'm very informal with that. But what happened this year when, when coronavirus hit and COVID hit, how quickly did you have to pivot with your classes? And what was, talk about that a little bit, because I think it's pretty fascinating to hear how the academic world had to do such a quick, quick about face and adjust everything to be online. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think a lot of us lived through this same experience was that, um, you know, we were all sort of reading and learning about COVID and starting to understand that it was, um, you know, going to spread internationally, going to spread in the United States. And it feels like we had sort of a little bit of warning, like, you know, things are probably going to have to change. Um, it was happening right as we were on spring break. And so, um, or right after we came back from spring break, I should say. And so it, it was, in some ways, we had a little bit of extra time because of that week. Um, but we never came back from spring break. And so, um, you know, it, it felt really quickly. And for people who were te- teaching face-to-face during the semester, oh, how difficult. I mean, just like all of the people who are teaching, um, you know, in our, in our K-12 through schools, that switch from face-to-face to online, um, you know, perhaps in the absence of resources and know-how and the right technology and all of that was just, was just a real challenge for everybody. Well, I don't really, I, I, I did a podcast on this not too long ago. I really don't have much patience for conspiracy theories, but if you, if you told me that the coronavirus was brought on by Zoom in an effort to increase their market share, I might, I might give that some credit, you know, some credential because it seems like Zoom now is how we, how we do almost everything. Did you have, did you have much experience doing online education before this happened? Yeah, well, fortunately for me, um, we have an online professional doctoral degree um, for people who are professionals in the field of kinesiology but don't have the terminal degree as yet. Um, and that's a, that's a national and international program. And I was teaching in that program. So the class that I was teaching was already an online class. Um, so the, the biggest change that I had to make was to try to be more accommodating to the challenging being, challenges being faced by my students who were almost all full-time professionals who themselves were teaching, like in community colleges and uh, in smaller programs. Interesting. I might need to talk to you offline about that, about that doctoral program. I've been kind of looking at, do I want to take that next step? I mean, I have my master's in exercise science and I've been trying to decide whether or not, anyway, that's a whole other, we can take that, <laughs> take that follow-up conversation with that. Now, one thing that, that kind of I wrote down here in my notes, and it might be interesting for listeners to hear, what is the difference between an exercise science program and a kinesiology program? How would you describe that difference or is there much of a difference? Yeah, I think that's mostly in name, Pete. So um, I haven't seen any consistent differences. I, I, I could be mistaken here, but um, as far as I know, there's not any real difference. A lot of the universities that I've been at, departments have made the name change from exercise science to kinesiology, um, typically when they wanted to reflect that they were more actively engaged in research. So, so it may be true that universities that have more active research profiles have been more quick to switch to the term kinesiology, obviously meaning the science of human movement. Um, and people at smaller universities that maybe are less research active, maybe exercise science has felt still a comfortable name for them. But the subdisciplines that are included in those departments tend to be the same. So they might be exercise physiology, sport and exercise psychology, pedagogy, motor behavior. Um, 
I'm sure I'm missing people, biomechanics, you know, so there's- Yeah, a- we don't want to offend anybody. No, exactly. <laughs> but the but- interesting thing, sorry to cut you off, but what I love about this, and, and yeah, I geek out on that stuff, but, but as so many people think, well, it's just exercise, right? I just go to the gym and I sweat and I exercise. Why, how, why are there so many sub-disciplines? What's, what's the point of studying so many different components of how we move? Yeah, that's a, that's a fun question to think about. I mean, I guess, I guess what's really important for people to recognize is that exercise is not as simple as we might think. I mean, there's so much to it. Um, you know, there's the psychology of how to help people um, to change their behaviors to become more physically active. There's the pedagogy about how we teach motor skills appropriately to children. Um, there's the motor behavior work, right, that, and motor control that's focused on sort of simple human movements that may be challenged in infants or might be challenged in older age if somebody's experiencing something like Parkinson's. Um, I, I mean, I think it's one of the neatest fields that there is, and in part because we also tie into our parent disciplines. So the exercise physiologists work closely with biologists and physiologists. The sport and exercise psychologists, you know, stay in touch with cognitive psychologists and um, general psychologists, and so you know, it's a discipline that really draws from a lot of um, a lot of parent disciplines that are have been around a lot longer than exercise science and kinesiology has been around. And I think that's so important. I think that's what a lot of listeners may not realize is that you know we again we tend to go to the gym, we tend to work out, we sweat, we, but we don't really think about all the things that go into it. Especially the people that already make exercise a regular habit. And what is you know, what has been the study about? Because the I guess the question I'm going to ask is I think with COVID nineteen, everybody has been kind of locked out from the gym for the last three months. Do you think in just your experience, and this is anecdotal, but do you think that people have been more active by being sheltering in place and being at home? You know, that it probably changes from location to location, right? And, and you're right. For me right now, I could only answer that anecdotally. Um, I'm fortunate enough to live in a place where it's safe and convenient for me to walk outside. And I have noticed that the numbers of other people who are walking and biking outside is dramatically more than it was prior to COVID. So, you know, I, I think, I mean, I know we're all, we're all losing our minds. We're all bored. <laughs> we, can't, we can't do the same things that we used to do. And boy, as a, as a, as a physical activity proponent, I am sure hoping that there are just tons and tons of people who have changed their behavior to become more active, um, you know, because this is sort of a unique opportunity. A lot of us aren't working or we're working from home. You know, things have really changed. We can't go to the gym. So I'm hoping a lot of people have chosen to be creative and to figure out ways to become more active than they previously were. Well, and again, I I appreciate that because I understand professors and researchers really don't like to answer questions that they don't have the data on, which is why I want to preface that with anecdotally. And the reason why I ask that is I I spoke with Dr. Martin Gabala not too long ago, and he'd explained he's up in Canada, up in uh, McMaster, which I think is Ontario. I might be wrong with that. But he had said up in Canada six weeks ago that a lot more people were active outside. And being here, I'm in Southern California, and, and you know the, the Southern, California, Southern California culture loves our cars. And I can't tell you, Jenny, that I'm amazed at the number of people I see walking through my neighborhood all throughout the day. And I think if nothing else, that's one of the uh, kind of blessings in disguise is that people have, have learned how to be more active by being at home, by just going outside and, and doing that simple walking. And you said that you've experienced the same thing. Now, going into that human behavior of it, do you think that's a behavior that people can carry forward as we start getting back to our regular, kind of our regularly scheduled program? Well, you know, it's interesting. When we ask people who are physically active, um, 
Well, if we, let, me, let me take it this other way. If I ask people who are not physically active why they're not active, the number one barrier is a lack of time. So um, obviously that means exercise isn't being prioritized, but everybody's busy. Everybody's overextended. I know that's the way life is for, for most of us. Um, but if you ask people who are regular exercisers how many commitments they have and you compare those to the commitments of the non-exercisers, what you'll find out is that the exercisers have at least as many commitments, if not more, than the non-exercisers. So what that means is that the people who are choosing to exercise have made exercise a priority in their life. So despite that they have you know, an equal or more commitments compared to others, they're making exercise fit into their day. So that's a long-winded way of getting to, you know, I am really hopeful that the folks who have found out how to get exercise into their day right now during this pandemic will then recognize the value of that exercise and what it's doing for them. So I, I am hoping that they're noticing every day after they finish walking or biking how good they feel, that, that feel-good effect that comes afterwards. I'm hoping they notice um, if they've been doing this for the whole three months, I know for me, I'm starting to lose a little bit of weight which isn't my reason to exercise, but it's a nice benefit. Um, and the other thing I'll say, Pete, and then I'll, and then I'll be quiet, but the way that we're being active is with our kids. And I desperately want to keep that a part of our lives because there is nothing better than walking in the evenings with my family and having that chance to connect with my teenagers. And that's one of the things I've been seeing, Jenny, and I've been doing that. Yeah. I was, I think I emailed to you that I've been doing the morning shift of homeschool and it really is, that's one of the things that I've enjoyed about this, right? I don't know how well I'm doing as a homeschool parent or because I never thought I'd be teaching that, especially kindergarten, second grade. But the one thing I thoroughly enjoy is that opportunity. You know, we still go for a walk. You know, we, we quote unquote walk to school, meaning we leave the house and we walk around the neighborhood and we come back and then we're in school. And I really agree with you. I hope that people are really able to carry this behavior forward. Now to shift gears real quick, what did you get? why were you recognized as a distinguished professor? What is your main area of focus? What area do you study or what area do you teach there at UNC Greensboro? Yeah, um, well, my primary focus is in looking at the cognitive benefits or the, 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 your ability to think better in response to physical activity. And I've been looking at that question across the lifespan. So we've done a number of studies where we look, we've looked at physical activity during the school day and the impact that might have on children's ability to do different types of cognitive tasks. Um, we've done research with college-age students. We usually do our work with them when we're really thinking about mechanisms. So like if we want to draw blood and look at things that are changing in the blood that might explain why they're getting cognitive benefits, we'll often do that with young adults you know, who are, who are free to say, okay, I'm happy to have you draw my blood. Um, and then we also are doing work with older adults. And so um, recently I've received funding from the National Institutes of Health, um, the National Institute of Aging, to look at the potential role of physical activity as a way of um, preventing might be too strong, but as a way of delaying perhaps somebody's risk of um, Alzheimer's disease. Well, let's so, stay with the cognitive, sorry, but yeah, I was going to no, ask you like, to, to talk a little bit about the cognitive development. And it's been a few years since I've read Dr. Dr. Rady's book, John Rady's book, Spark. But in it, he gives a case study of Naperville, the Naperville school system, and how physical activity benefits kids. So how does physical activity benefit the cognitive function of kids? Well, the work that we've done has been really looking at memory. That's what we've been focusing on initially. And so what we found is that if kids do a single session of exercise, and it can just be 
20 minutes of exercise, or it could be, um, we've done it recently where the kids were running the mile run for their fitness test. Um, so after that bout of exercise, we look at their ability to remember lists of words. And what we find is that the kids who have exercised are able to remember lists of words better than the children who didn't exercise. Now, the link to academic performance, I recognize like we've got, we've got work to do to demonstrate that link. But what I really believe is that the exercise is essentially priming the student to be more successful in the school setting. And so, you know, whether they're, they're, they're trying to learn um, addition and subtraction or whether they're trying to learn spelling or whether they're trying to learn grammar, you know, whatever it is, they are essentially trying to commit some things to memory. And so I am hopeful that as we continue to do work in this, in this area, we show the kinds of results that you're talking about um, where in the school setting, if kids are physically active, we actually see them do better during the school day. And there, there is some evidence in that regard, but it, that's hard research to do. And so we've been sort of trying to boil it down to answer some kind of simple questions first, hopefully providing us the foundation then to go try to answer some of the more challenging questions. Well, I think you mentioned that you do some research on BDNF, and, and I guess two questions here. Can you explain what BDNF is, and does that, is that change? Because I typically have associated BDNF with, with cognitive function in older adults, but it's my understanding there's also a benefit for kids as well, correct? Yeah, um, and I'm not a physiologist, so let me give you that caveat first. So I'm, okay. speaking, I'm speaking to this as a sport and exercise psychologist who, who, who is in this literature. Okay. Um, BDNF is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So brain-derived suggesting that it is produced in the brain. We also believe it's produced by muscle. Um, neurotrophic, uh, meaning obviously that it can relate to neurons. And then the trophic part, meaning that it has to do with the growth of those neurons. So there is evidence that shows that exercise increases BDNF circulating in the bloodstream. There is also some evidence from um, animal studies that shows that BDNF in the central nervous system in the brain increases in response to a single session of exercise. Um, and so what, what's important about BDNF is that it does two things. It has two forms. It has an immature form and a mature form. And um, these two forms sort of work um, like a push-me-pull-you, like a yin and a yang, okay? So one of the forms is responsible for kind of the pruning of synapses that, and neurons that perhaps are no longer needed. And the other form is responsible for the growth of synapses where we need them. So to me, I kind of think of it, you know, if you were a gardener and you were to go in and you were to sort of trim off the little parts of the tomato plant that you didn't want, but then you were also to provide some fertilizer so that the tomato plant would grow, to me, that's kind of what BDNF does. That's a, a metaphor for, for how BDNF works in the brain. So, so basically, in, in your work, you said you work at co- look at cognitive function exercise and cognitive function throughout the lifespan. This isn't just in the older brain, but also works in the younger brain as well. Is that, is that what you found? Yeah, and Pete, what's really cool to think about, so um, all of us benefit from exercise in terms of our cognitive performance. We, we have yet to find an age group that doesn't benefit, right? Everybody benefits. But it certainly makes sense that in children whose brains are developing so rapidly and in older adults who unfortunately their brains are starting to show some signs of age, in those two ends of the continuum, exercise can be particularly important because it is giving the body, the brain, 
the physical stimulus that it needs to improve brain health. And so to me, um, it's really fascinating to look at children because developmentally they are likely to benefit more from exercise than a perfectly healthy young adult who's in the prime of his or her life, right? And it's also fascinating to look at people um, who are in middle age, older age, um, who are starting to see age-related declines in their ability to think and perform activities of daily living and things like that. For those individuals, exercise is also fantastically important. And I think, and that's exactly where I want to go with this next, because one of the things I think that people might not realize with, with activity is if they're jammed up at work, if they're working on a problem, would it, would, how does a, like if they go out for a walk, if they go out for a little physical activity, how does that stimulate? Is there a short-term acute benefit? So if I'm trying to work on something at work or trying to write something, would I receive a benefit from going out for like a walk? And, and what, if you could talk about that a little bit, if there's an immediate reaction that might stimulate the blood flow or might stimulate the thought process. Yeah, absolutely. No, there, there definitely is. And so the work that we've done shows that, um, and, and not just us, but other labs as well, shows that even really short bouts of exercise and even at relatively low intensity, like just a walk around the block or a walk around your building or whatever it might be, those, um, that, that stimulus to the body, to the brain, um, provides us then with the ability to, to think better when we come back and get back to work. Um, there's also some really interesting things that look at sort of, you know, the depletion of cognitive energy, if you will. So if you're working on something that's really cognitively taxing, something that's really hard, you know, where you're pr- trying to problem solve and it's difficult, well, then taking a break and, ex- and exercising can be the exact break that you need that would allow you to come back fresh and ready to go. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's a great example. And um, it's why I think physical activity throughout the school day is really important. I don't, I don't think kids should just exercise once during the day for 20 minutes. I think it would be much, much better if they were designed to have short little bouts of physical activity before every class period, you know, and, and some places get that. If you're in a big school, you might get to walk for five minutes. If you're at a university, you might get to walk for 10 or 15 minutes. And, and that is, that is, you know, that's fortuitous in terms of your ability to pay attention and listen and learn in that next class period. Well, in our school district here, in, 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 I, my kids go to Encinitas in, San, in the San Diego County area. And it was interesting because they do a yoga. They do yoga once or twice a week, which I love. But it was funny, a number of years ago, Jenny, some parents actually sued the school district saying that the yoga was trying to promote a religion. And I can't tell you how upsetting that was that parents took a look at that and, and they tried to interrupt that. Would yoga, would even just that regular activity so you're saying that that could help kids perform better in school overall? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, yoga is kind of an interesting one because there's a lot more going on with yoga, um, absent the religious part, which, which I wouldn't even like to speak to at all. Um, but there are th- other things that are going on, like mindfulness, um, being in the moment, right? Um, focusing on your breathing, stretching, those types of activities. Um, but there is evidence for sure that yoga also helps with cognition. Now, if I had to pick, um, I would say I'd rather that kids were doing something that was a, a higher intensity than yoga. But if it's yoga or just stay in class during that time period, I'd say, let's do yoga. If there are kids who prefer yoga to something that's more intense, I'd say, let's do yoga. So, you know, if, if we're looking at cognitive benefits, any kind of physical activity is going to help. 
physical activity that's at a higher intensity up to moderate is probably going to be increasingly more beneficial. Then once you get to moderate and start to go up to higher intensity, then you have to be a little bit careful because it might depend on the fitness of the kid, might depend on, you know, when you want them to be cognitively engaged. Um, I'm going on longer probably than you want me to, Pete, but I was just going to say if, you know, if you, if you have somebody do like um, a full out mile run test and they run as hard as they possibly can, well, their cognitive performance immediately after that might not be improved as much as if they had done something at a moderate intensity. But what's cool is that high intensity might actually help them an hour later or two hours later because it's sort of a delayed positive response then. um, And they move away from the actual fatigue of that exercise. So really long-winded response, but I guess it's partly to say it's it's a complicated, um, it's a complicated proposition because exercise is such a complex behavior. It involves duration, intensity, modality, um, possibly preference, and certainly, you know, relative to the person's individual fitness level. Well, and I'd love that answer, though, because a lot of people don't realize, and this is one thing I joke about when, when I teach. I've, I've taught, a, uh, taught a lecture at fitness conferences for years called Training the Endocrine System, because a lot of people, and this is for personal trainers as well, don't realize that every amount of physical activity, what you're doing is you're changing the chemicals you're changing the level of chemicals in your body. So let's take this a step forward and look at the look at the aging brain. How does how does high intensity activity promote promote BDNF in the aging brain? Is there a causation or a correlation between the intensity activity and sort of the chemical mixture of whether it's BDNF and other hormones that might affect the aging body? Yeah, you know that's an interesting question, and I unfortunately I don't have like a very straightforward answer for you. Um, The research that's been done on a single session of exercise and BDNF and cognition is really pretty limited so far. Um, Last time I looked, there were only seven published studies. There's probably 10 or 12 by now. Um, When we look at the literature on exercise and cognition in older adults, most of the focus has been on chronic exercise or exercise that's done, you know, regularly over an extended period of time. Um, And when you look at those types of studies, they're typically using moderate intensity exercise. The rationale being that moderate intensity exercise is much easier for people to do in the long run. And certainly if you're doing a research study, you wouldn't want to do high intensity exercise with an older adult resulting in them being injured and not being able to exercise at all. So, you know, your specific question about high intensity exercise for older adults in cognition, to be honest, there's not, there's not much literature on that because that hasn't been the focus. And it's, and it's probably not necessary. You know, if we're getting benefits with moderate intensity exercise and moderate intensity exercise is easier to maintain over time, then it makes sense to stick, you know, to stick with moderate intensity exercise. You're still getting the benefit and you have much less risk. And it's interesting. And one thing I should point out, Jenny, that I always, I always point out when I speak with, with a researcher like yourself is the fact that no researcher ever wants to give a definitive answer, right? Because you look at what date the data shows, you look at what the evidence shows. So when I've spoken with like with, with Dr. Gabala, or I've spoken with, with other researchers, and I asked them a question, it's always just for listeners to know, it's always prefaced on that research. Why is it? I mean, why is that research so important? And, and you know, how do you how does your training teach you how to kind of adhere to the data that you see? Yeah, that's a neat question. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, as academics, we're really trained in experimental design um, from early in our career, and we understand the value of studies where 
People are randomly assigned to conditions so that the only thing that could explain a difference between two groups is whatever it is you made different between those two groups. Um, we, we also learn, and I think this is important for listeners to, to think about, is that any individual study, any single study, is only worth so much. I mean, what if I do a study with 20 participants? Is that going to tell me the, the end-all, be-all answer? No, because it's, it's just not enough data. It's not enough reliability. It's not enough repetition for me to put full confidence in giving the answer. And so, um, you know, what we try to do and what I'm trying to do in my lab group is to really approach some questions very systematically. We've been looking at memory um, for about five, ten years now. And people might say, well, goodness, aren't you tired of memory? Well, yeah, I'd like to get to academic performance or I'd like to get to real-world cognitive abilities in older adults. But I need to really look at this question systematically so that I can understand questions like dose response, like what you're interested in, Pete. How can I tell somebody what intensity to exercise at if I haven't tested all intensities? And I say that a little bit, you know, that's a little bit over-exaggerated, but if I haven't done studies where I've looked at high-intensity exercise with older adults, how can I possibly tell you whether that's going to be the most effective or not? And we have to sort of build a case, if you will, for what type of exercise and what intensity of exercise and what specific cognitive outcomes do I care about and which kind of groups do I care about? Because otherwise, we might be over-speaking and we might be misdirecting people from other behaviors or things that they might do that might help an outcome they're interested in. Well, and I love that answer. And, and I know, you know, I try to, I try to build this podcast or I kind of, when I look at the guests and when I look at what I try to curate, the content I try to curate is I want this podcast to be the NPR fitness podcast, meaning we're talking about at a higher level. And the reason why I say that is I always ask that question of every researcher, every academic on here, because the point I try to make over and over again, Jenny, is the more definitive somebody is about an answer and exercise, you need to do this or you must do this, the less we should pay attention to them. Is that sort of, yeah, I know it's kind of a long way to, to say it, but I, but I mean, anytime you, you, you talk to somebody like yourself who studies exercise for a living, who, that's what you do, it really is. It all comes down, because I love that. If you only have a study group of 20 people, that's, that's giving you an idea. It's giving you kind of a, a ballpark estimate of what could, you ha- what could happen when you change some variables. But really, you need to have a kind of wide body of data or of evidence before you really feel comfortable saying something definitively, correct? Yeah, I think that's true. And I think, you know, I think for your listeners, that's great that, that, that um, you're trying to also provide some education about how all of us need to be careful when people are telling us things as if they are 100% true, um, you know, and, and I guess the, the flip side of that, too, though, is I wouldn't want your listeners to get so um, overly critical that, that, that we're not open to sort of what evidence is starting to tell us. And the example that I think of here is, um, and I've heard this before, other people have said this, but the whole thing with like eating eggs, right, and cholesterol, and is eating eggs a good thing or a bad thing? Well, the, the science on that is changing, but that's not because, it's not because it's not because anything that was said individually was, was necessarily wrong. It's just that our depth of understanding is improving, right? So um, I shouldn't have used that egg example because I don't know a lot about that. But <laughs> it's, just, it's just one in the popular press that I, I think, oh, yeah, this is a good example of why people get skeptical then. I guess that's the way of saying it. Um, we are trying, those of us in sport and exercise psychology who are focused on cognition are trying to build a body of evidence that would make people 
um, feel comfortable knowing that if we tell them that exercise is going to help you do this or this, that they would feel confident that, yeah, that seems true because there's a body of evidence that supports, supports that argument. Well, that's why, and I like that. I'm going to come back to, to cognitive and aging in a second, but that's why, I mean, the only definitive statement I'll say, and I'd like your, your insight on this too, Jenny, is the only definitive statement that, that I will say is, is a lack of exercise, a lack of physical activity will take years off your life. Isn't that what the data is showing is that, it, and, and the American College of Sports Medicine in the last few years has made physical inactivity and a sedentary lifestyle a risk factor for chronic disease. Isn't that what the data has shown overwhelmingly, that people who aren't physically active are literally taking years off their life? Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that, that I can definitely agree with. As long as you leave it that, that broad, I think that's certainly true. Um, we know that uh, a sedentary lifestyle is predictive of things like cancers. We know that it's predictive of Alzheimer's disease. We know that it's predictive of other um, you know, chronic conditions that then are associated with higher mortality rate and, and earlier you know, loss of life. Um, I mean, I guess, and, and that sort of ties back into something we were talking about a minute ago, which is, you know, if the choice is between being sedentary and doing yoga, between doing set, being sedentary and going for a walk, I'm always going to pick the answer that says don't be sedentary. Because being sedentary has a host of negative um, sequelae that are going are gonna to follow. And so if we can just get people to get up and be more active, even if that's just you know, just moving around their house to do more housework or just moving around their neighborhood or moving around, you know, wherever they can, it's going to be beneficial to them. Well, there's that whole idea of NEAT and, and have you like the non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Have you studied that at all in terms of, of the effects on cognition? And for listeners, NEAT, non-activity exercise thermogenesis is just, is you have physical activity is classified as physical activity, walking around, doing chores around the house and exercise is a planned physical activity. I mean, that's, I, I would guess those are the academic definitions, correct? Yeah, sure. That's that, that fits the ACSM definitions really well. And so does neat, does that non-exercise activity, does that provide a cognitive benefit as well? Have you, have you had a chance to study that or, or is there published research on that? Yeah, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. You know, the focus on sedentary versus non-sedentary and looking at those really um, low intensity kinds of activities of daily living um, is not as well developed. And you think about it, that's kind of hard stuff to do because you, you do have to imagine that dose matters a little bit, right? So if I do exercise, that's so much easier to quantify. It's so much easier to remember. If you ask me how much I exercised yesterday, Pete, I can remember, I can estimate the intensity, I can tell you the duration, I can almost, I could probably tell you the mileage because I'm walking in a, in a route that I walk all the time. Um, but if you ask me what I did yesterday that fits this definition of neat types of activities that are more like activities of daily living, I can't tell you that. I can't really remember. Um, and if I were to try to study it, it would be hard because I can't, it's hard to manipulate it. Like, it's hard for me to say, Pete, go have a day where you have a lot of these types of activities. <laughs> and how would you do it? You know, you'd have to kind of, it's just funny to think about. I don't, I don't know exactly how you'd do it, right? So, well, again, a long-winded answer. I'm sorry. But, but, yeah, we don't know much about that type of activity. But, but you do have to imagine that the, that, that the accumulation of that type of activity is going to be important. 
Well, one of the things I'll do, like if I'm if I'm at a conference or if I'm traveling internationally and I know I'm not going to make it to to a gym that day or if it's not it's not accessible, one of the things I'll do is I'll get off an elevator early or I won't take the elevator at the hotel. I'll walk up the stairs or if I'm at the airport, I'll walk up, you know, instead of taking the escalators, I'll walk up the stairs because I know that that type of accumulated activity, I might not make it to the gym, but walking up two flights of stairs, if I do that two or three times throughout the day does have a, you know, an ad, you know, the kind of the benefits do add up. I mean, we've seen that, correct? That doing just a little five to 10 minute bursts of activity that can add up, you know, throughout the day. Yeah, absolutely. We haven't seen it specifically with cognitive outcomes, but with the types of physical outcomes that you were mentioning, we have absolutely seen it. And I mean, I do the same thing. If I'm, if I'm going somewhere to go shopping, which <laughs> is so funny, you're talking about elevators and I'm talking about shopping as if we do those things right now. We don't, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, actually, it's, now that you say that, I don't think I've been in an elevator for months. Yeah, now, well, and now that I think about it. At UNCG, elevators are going to be off limit unless you're just from a single family, right? One person can be at the elevator at a time, but not multiple people. So, oh, wow. But I was going to say, like, if I were to go to a shopping center, instead of being stressed and looking for the closest parking space, I'll just say, hey, I can use these steps and I'll just take a parking space so far away. It's in the hinterland and I don't care because that just gives me an opportunity to get more steps as I'm going in to do to do my business. Well, and the thing I love about that, I, you know, a lot of us in the industry or in the business, we do the same thing. And then you're much closer to the exit when you get to your car. You're not waiting for the people <laughs> coming and going to the front of the store. I'm just sticking to my local Target. I park as far as my kids are always like, can't we park closer, Daddy? And I'm like, no, because <laughs> no, when we leave, we're right by the exit. And that, that to me is, um, is pretty easy. Now, I want to come back to something. You mentioned Alzheimer's. So, and I think this has been, I think this is a huge concern for people as they get into their 40s and 50s and they start looking ahead. Is Alzheimer's and dementia, is that something that physical activity can certainly fight against? Or is that a reason to maintain physical activity is because I believe, how is the evidence starting to show that physical activity could really fight against those sort of cognitive diseases? Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, if you don't mind, I'm going to use this chance to, to mention my study that we're doing right now, which is called the Physical Activity and Alzheimer's Disease 2 Study. If any of your listeners are in the North Carolina area and are interested in taking part, what we're doing is we're recruiting um, people who have a family history of Alzheimer's disease and who are currently um, not meeting ACSM's recommendation for physical activity. And then we're testing them um, at a pretest, a mid-test, and a post-test on a bunch of cognitive um, performance tests. And then after the pretest, we randomly assign them to either an exercise, a group exercise program for a year, or to just maintain their normal lifestyle for a year. And what we believe is going to happen, and we've seen in lots of other studies, is that the group that exercises is going to show improvements in cognition over the course of that year. What we're really interested in, and this is where we could expand upon um, what we already know, what we're interested in finding out is if a person's genetic risk for Alzheimer's then then influences the extent to which they benefit from the physical activity. What we showed in a pilot study was that even people who have the genetic risk factors for Alzheimer's disease experience cognitive benefits um, associated with their participation in physical activity. So uh, let me try to break that down a little bit. Past evidence clearly shows that in older adults, if they are sedentary and they become physically active, they'll get cognitive benefits. Past evidence clearly shows that people who are more physically active have less risk of being diagnosed with Alzheimer's 
in the future, five years, 10 years, depending on the study, then uh, what did I, how did I say it? Yeah, physically active people have less risk than people who are not active. So what, what current research is trying to show is some of the more specifics. And so what we're, what we're really interested in is, okay, if you have somebody who has both a family history of Alzheimer's and genetic risk for Alzheimer's, can physical activity still benefit them? And based upon our pilot work and on other studies that have been done, we anticipate that the answer is going to be yes. And if that's true, Pete, then that's hugely important because any of your listeners who have a family member with Alzheimer's know how incredibly destructive and horrible that illness is. And so if we can find out that physical activity is a behavior that they can use to um, delay any, any clinical implications that they might have, then that would be incredibly important. Well, and that's what I try to do with, with my work, Jenny, is I want people to realize, especially once you, know, you get over the age of 40 or 45 or into your 50s, that exercise, yes, we, we want to maintain, yes, everybody wants to look good. And I live here in Southern California where you know, people in their 50s want to look like people in their 30s. But that's a whole other psychological thing that <laughs> there would be a whole other podcast altogether. But what I really want people to realize is that exercise literally is the fountain of youth. So basically, your, your, your work is showing... Because the question I always have with Alzheimer's, and when you look at this type of stuff, because it's hard to isolate genetics versus lifestyle, right? Because if I come from a family where sedentary behavior is, you know, the pattern, parents watch a lot of TV, we don't do much physical activity, is it kind of hard to tease out genetics and lifestyle? But then you're saying, you're, you're, you're saying that the evidence is starting to show that changing your level of physical activity could interrupt that. So it doesn't really matter then if it's a genetic or lifestyle issue. Well, I mean, you already said I was going to be cautious about it. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to say it doesn't matter if it's a genetic issue because genetics could certainly influence the extent to which you benefit from being physically active, right? But yes, the overwhelming body of literature would suggest that even if you have been sedentary for most of your life, if you start to become physically active now, today, tomorrow, right, and stay regularly physically active, for an extended period of time, which doesn't have to be forever, but if it's forever, you'll keep getting the benefits, right? But if you can start becoming physically active and you can be, you know, exercise, meet ACSM guidelines, go for 150 minutes a week. If you can do that, you are going to see benefits in terms of your mental health, your physical health, your cognitive health, all of these areas. And for listeners, I'm going to define what the guidelines are after, after the interview. Now, one thing I want to ask, and I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about some of the other work you do. Do you, do you wear an Apple Watch or do you wear like a, a tracker yourself? No, I don't. I should, but I don't. Because when you say this about collecting data, and, and somebody I used to work with is in charge of the fitness program for Apple Watch. And I've heard him give a couple of talks about that. Because the one thing that's exciting to me, and I think that you can tap into as a researcher, is my understanding of people who wear the Apple Watch can opt in to the research to have their data kind of uploaded so that researchers like yourself can get the metadata of everybody who's wearing the Apple Watch to look at their data. So you're not going to get my specific name, but you might get my, my age, 47, my activity level, and be able to do that. Have you, have you been exposed to that at all? Is that something that you're aware of? I just it, um, it was something that occurred to me when you're talking about data sets and we were talking about looking at, at population studies. Yeah, let me, let me say two things about that. One is, you know, one of your initial questions about what's happened to physical activity in light of the COVID pandemic well, that's something that that data would be readily available to address, right? Because they would have the Apple Watch data from the month prior to the pandemic, 
they could even throw out the month of March maybe because that was when things were happening at a different, you know, at different rates in different, in different states. Um, or, or, and, and then they could look at um, April data or May data, right? And so they could look at physical activity behaviors for Apple Watch wearers prior to and following or prior to and during, I should say, the pandemic. I, I hope we come, all come back to being physically active again after the pandemic. Um, the other thing that I was going to say is that one of my students is going to try to take advantage of the technology and those smartwatches by doing a study on acute exercise that asks people to do something in their own home, which we've never done before. So um, she's going to have a link. She's going to randomly assign people to either exercise or not exercise for 20 minutes. Um, she'll use their Apple Watch data to confirm their behavior, and she's going to look at the impact on cognition prior to, uh, from, from prior to that behavior to after, after whichever condition they get, the exercise or the rest. So we, we are starting to try to use some of the um, smartwatch technology instead of the work that I'm doing, and there are others, obviously, across the country who have taken more advantage of that technology. But, yeah, that's a great tool to try to look at large groups of people and to get some good data to um, understand better what they're doing in terms of their physical activity. Well, and I'm sorry, just because that kind of occurred to me, you're talking about data sets and I know they're collecting that data. And I just recently interviewed a guest who's a professional drummer. He's a drummer for a rock band and he recently got an Apple watch and he was talking, he was so excited talking about his Apple watch, right? Cause he was, he was like, yeah, this is now, I'm now tracking. He's like, I kind of challenged myself. And so it's really interesting to see how it's changing, how it's changing behavior. Has that been anything that your lab has studied? Like look at the impact of trackers or look at the impact of smartwatches? Yeah, that's not, that's not my lab group, but I'm, I'm aware of that work that's been done. I mean, if we, if we give somebody even a, um, <laughs> some of the work we've done is kind of funny, but we ask a kid to put on an accelerometer, which you might wear on your waist, and, and that allows us to track their movement in a classroom, and then we're looking at cognition, you know, relative to the amount of movement. But the first day you give them that, that device and they put it on the waist, if you're dealing with kids, I've watched them. They just sit there and whack the little device to try to see if it'll make the numbers go up, right? <laughs> so, so we know that having a device that monitors your physical activity and movement is um, motivating, especially on that initial exposure, um, the challenge is for it to stay motivating. You know, you mentioned the drummer. If the drummer just got the Apple Watch, you know, now it's exciting. I'm with it. I'm looking at it all the time. Um, when my son got a Fitbit, he was looking at it all the time. And um, it's just sort of worn off. So we have to, the real challenge is then to figure out how to help people to maintain that once the novelty wears off. And that's exactly what I know. Some of the data has been shown with that. Now to switch the gear there, you talked about, you talked about your son, you talked about the activity, some of the other work. And this is what I found fascinating when I looked at your CV, because you're looking at that, the cognitive development, but your other work, and you have two books on this subject and that's on, on coaching. So what type of work have you done with coaching? This is specifically for coaching kids and, and coaching youth sports. Yeah, sure. So um, I was lucky enough to get to work a lot with the United States Soccer Federation um, some time ago in their coaching education program. And when I was working with those coaches, one of the things that I found out was that most of those, I mean, it was so funny. I was doing sports psychology talks with coaches to try to teach them to be better coaches. And after the talk was over, I can't tell you how many coaches came up to me and said, oh my gosh, when I was a player, if only I had known about this sports psychology information. And based upon that feedback that I got consistently from these coaches, I realized that um, people might benefit from having a book that made sports psychology techniques and performance and information accessible to kids. So the first book that I wrote is called Bring Your A-Game. 
and it's really um, it's it's not sports specific. There are some sports specific books out there, but this one is not sports specific. And it's really just meant to teach some techniques like mental practice and imagery, relaxation skills to youth athletes um, who are in sort of the teenager age, right? So it's it's meant to make those skills accessible to them. The second book, I, well, sorry. Real quick Go on ahead. that, no, yeah. if, if you don't mind, if you don't mind me cutting in on that, how important is mental imagery? If you can discuss that for a second, because I love the fact that you're trying to introduce mental imagery to kids that young. And what is what is mental imagery and how important is that? Yeah, I mean, practicing your skills mentally is one of the is one of the techniques that we know is incredibly effective in helping people improve their performance. And you know, it's really good to mention right now during COVID because it's hard to get out and play basketball. It's hard to get out and play soccer. It's hard to get out and play whatever sport it is that you love. Um, but you can certainly envision yourself performing some of the sports skills um, in your mind. And if you do that over and over and over again, you will get better at performing those sports skills, even without doing it physically. So, you know, if you're a tennis player, you can imagine and feel the movement and feel how the ball feels bouncing off the court. You can imagine every aspect of that tennis serve. And if you do that several times a day regularly, it will ultimately end up improving your performance or, or maybe in this case, help you maintain your, your, you know, your, your sort of your motion and, and your automaticity of your movement until you're able to get back on the court. Yeah, there's one study that I read that that I re- saw referenced years ago, where it was imagining doing an exercise. One group did the exercise, one group visualized doing the exercise, and one group was a control group and didn't do anything. And the group that did the exercise actually got you know they had the most improvement. But the group that just did the visualization, Jenny, I think had a, had like a, a a double digit improvement. I don't want to go, but I know it was a double digit improvement in their strength from just visualizing the exercise. Is that pretty consistent with some of the research you've seen? Yeah, absolutely. That, I mean, that's a perfect example of how it works. That's great, and that that might be for strength, but again, it's it's about automaticity. You can use it um, to deal with situations that you find stressful. If you're a basketball player and, and shooting free throws you, is something you find stressful, then you can combine relaxation techniques with visualization, and you're almost doing like desensitization training to try to prepare yourself for those scenarios where you are the one taking the free throws and, and want to have it be practiced and automatic and relaxed and fluid. And that's bring your A game. So that's, for you, that's a young athlete's guide to mental toughness. And the second book is more for coaching, correct? Yeah, and um, you know, in in the history of of having the worst possible timing to have a book come out, I think I could win the prize. Um, this is a book that's written for youth sport coaches, um, and it is designed to help them basically kind of remember their whole reason for being there, which I imagine and trust is because they want to help the kids have a good experience and um, improve in the sport. Um, so the book is written to help coaches. Uh, remember not to, to, to lose their minds and start focusing on winning at the expense of everything else. The reason you're there is to help the kids have fun, enjoy, improve. Um, and, and so that's what that book is. It's called Coaching for the Love of the Game. It came out, unfortunately, on March the 16th, right, as all of youth sport <laughs> shut down for the first time in history. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not lying. Just I'm laughing at just the whole irony of that because I saw that release date on Amazon and I was just like, oh my goodness, because that's the exact yeah. week that we got shut down here in California. Well, why is that so important? What do you think happens in youth sports? I mean, what do you think the youth sports experience is, and how does that affect people in the long term? Yeah, well, if you've if you've been out there, Pete, which I think you have, and if your if your listeners have been out there, um, this focus on winning is just to me. I just it's just it's mind boggling. 
you know, um, people saying that, that, that winning is what matters, people training their kids, teaching their kids to believe that winning is matter, what matters, and then they lose the focus of just having fun. They lose the focus of just socializing with their friends, of just competing for the pure joy of competing, of just improving at a sport for the joy of improving at that sport, right? And I mean, I'm not, I'm not an idiot. I, I, I'm super competitive. I love to compete. But I don't care if I lose, and I don't put all value on winning. Um, I put value on competing. I put value on trying hard. I put value on having fun, giving my all to try to have a successful outcome. Um, and that's what we really have to teach our kids to do. And, and I just think that the way society is, um, you know, people have sort of lost sight of those goals and have started to believe that winning is what matters. Well, I agree. When I was an, it was when I was an athlete playing really competitive rugby, there are going to be games where you know that it was going to be a tough go of it. You know that you're going up against a well-matched team, and and so winning to me was was not the expectation, but it was playing well. It was it was being able to sit, walk off the pitch and say, "Yeah, I had a good match today." We may not have, the score may not have demonstrated it, but you know you can't do anything if you're you know if you're a Division three going up against a Division one. You just got to play your best with that. And it's interesting because I, I shared with you I coach youth rugby as well. And we had a kid, it was his first year playing youth rugby, U12, under 12 rugby. And he had grown up playing football. He'd been playing American football his last few years. And he would get so upset, Jenny, if things didn't go well, if things didn't go his way. And the other parents that I was coaching with, one was from, from Great Britain. One of the other parents was from South Africa who grew up in the rugby culture. And by the end of the season, it was amazing to see how this kid had changed. He was so he was focusing much less on the score, much less on the individual outcome, and more on did we perform better? Did the team play better as a team? And is that something that you've experienced where the kids will do the kids A take on the personality of their coaches if it's win at all costs? And B, is it possible to make that change? Yeah, I mean the example you gave is just a perfect one and and, and why I think trying to to educate coaches is so important. Um, absolutely. We know that kids will respond to the climate that's created. Um, that climate is created largely by the coaches. I know that's not in isolation. Um, it's also created by the leagues that they're playing in. It's created by the parents and how they, you know, how they respond to, to what's happening in the event, in the match. Um, but yeah, coaches are hugely important in that. And your example is a great one of how coaches can really help kids to get the focus where it needs to be, which is just on the things that they can control. They can only control how hard they're trying. They can only control how hard they're working. They can only control, you know, how much they're willing to give in practices and competitions. They can't control who wins the game or who wins the match. And, and so focusing on that really sets people up for failure and sets kids up for disappointment and sets kids up for dropping out of sport, which is what we're seeing, you know, in big numbers. You know, and that's like I, like I shared with you before we hit record, you know, this is a U12 group that I've kind of, I've become buddies with some of the other dads. My kids don't play on the team and there is such a talent pool of kids that are playing at this level. And we're just, we're excited to see what we can develop with them in the next four or five years. Not for the sake of, of not of winning. We're not looking at like, do we want to be a national champion? We just want to see these kids play well and play better. That really is our focus with it. We just want to see, can we develop? It's going to be a kind of our own private lab, right? And I can, I can follow up with you and let you know how it goes. But we want to see if we can develop the attitude and the ethos in these kids of just being good sportsmen, because that's the one thing that I think the rugby culture really does well 
is try to try to, to, to instill in that. What sports have you been involved with as a coach or in, in research? And I think you said your kids play as well. Yeah. Well, when I was a kid, I played everything I could possibly play. Um, when I was in high school, I lettered in three different sports, basketball, fast pitch, softball, and soccer. Um, and even in soccer, when I played, I played on the boys team all through high school because there weren't, there wasn't a very strong girls program at the time. Um, and then I got to play soccer in college and a, and a little bit semi-professionally. Um, I've coached at the youth level and I was an assistant coach, um, at Wake Forest, a volunteer assistant coach when I was there. So I've, I've coached at all levels, um, in soccer and that's been the sport that I've mostly stuck with. That's the sport that I've coached my kids in is soccer. Did you play at Chapel Hill with, uh, Mia? Where are you? This about the same, you might be. Oh Lord, no. I, I played at Tennessee and it was club soccer in that day. But when I got my master's degree, I did have the privilege, the UNC a Chapel Hill coach was kind enough to let me train with the team. So I got to play with Mia, but only, only because I got to, I got to train with them in the off season a little bit. And it was a, a highlight for me, obviously. And with, and, and you know, just, and then we'll wrap it up because I'm getting ready to wrap it up. What was your experience being around? Let me ask you this question about, about women's sports and girls sports. Cause I have two daughters. What do you think? How, what is your impression of women's sports and girls sports versus boys sports? Meaning, do you think there's more of an emphasis on winning in one gender versus the other and teamwork, like developing teamwork. Like what is, what's been your experience of the difference? Yeah, we haven't seen, we haven't seen that much. I have a chapter in my book that's focused on gender differences. And, and, you know, what we really find is that the differences between individuals really overshadows any gender-based group differences that you might see. Um, I do have a lot of male coaches who come to me and ask me what they need to know specifically about coaching girls teams, because that's the way it often works, right? That you have a, a dad um, or a male parent who's willing to come coach the girls team. We don't have enough women in coaching roles and that's true at all levels. Um, but the truth is, is that if the athletes are out there and they've come to you to play and we're talking youth athletes now, they're there because they want to have fun. They want to interact with their friends they want to learn how to be better players or athletes, um, and that's it. So as a coach, approach them from that, from that viewpoint, you know, be, be ready to help nurture them in sort of moving towards their goals, which might have nothing to do with competition and may have only to do with having fun, right? So you have to, you have to figure out what your, what your kids are like that are on your team or in your club or in your organization, and then as the adult you know, be the one who figures out, okay, so how do I structure practices to give them what they need to make sure that they enjoy this? And you'll know they're enjoying it if they come back next season, right? I think that's a great limit test. And, and what I was just thinking of, a friend of mine, and, and you know, everything's on hold, but, but a friend of mine has a sports league, an adult sports league in Seattle called Underdog Sports. And it's really for, it was for those people, people that may not have been great athletes as kids, but now they can play sports as adults, like kickball and flag football and other stuff like that. And as you're saying that, Jenny, I'm just thinking the one thing we want to do as coaches is instill a love of the sport. So like you, like myself and like other people that we stay active throughout our lifespan. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as fitness professionals, that's what we're thinking, right? Like why, why is it that we don't have as many people playing sports and being engaged in physical activity as adults as when they're kids? There's this huge drop-off, right? It goes from millions of kids participating to like boom, this huge decline. They all drop out of organized sport. But the sad thing is many of them drop out of physical activity altogether. And I love, I love that organization you just mentioned in Seattle. I mean, why, why shouldn't we all be playing? Oh, my gosh. There's so much fun in competing in whatever 
silly or serious sport it might be, right? It can be kickball. It can be piggyback kickball. It can be tug of war. <laughs> it can be, you know, or it can be more serious adult soccer leagues, adult volleyball, adult basketball, whatever it is. But there aren't huge numbers of people participating in those activities. And that's, that's a real shame. Well, Doc, I really appreciate your time today, and it's really been fun to have this conversation with you, and I definitely want to stay in touch with you. And for listeners, this doctor, I'll have links below to, to your books below, is Dr. Jenny, and I just want to make sure I pronounce this correctly, Etnire? That's correct. You got it. At, uh, professor of Kinesiology at UNC Greensboro, and her books are Coaching for the Love of the Game and Bring Your A-Game, A Young Athlete's Guide to Mental Toughness. So, Doc, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, Pete. What a real pleasure and, and a lot of fun. And that is why I like talking to academics. There are a lot of podcasts out there that will talk about getting big muscles, getting shredded, getting big glutes, toning your inner thighs, all that stuff. If that's important to you, great. But what I'm trying to do on All About Fitness is help you understand how exercise changes the body, how exercise works. Because it's been my experience, a lot of people that are fitness enthusiasts, yes, they know exercise is important. Yes, they know they need to be doing it. But they're not quite sure how it changes the body. They're not quite sure the whole process behind it. Uh, you heard me speak recently to Fabio Camano. We talked about high-intensity interval training, why you don't want to do that too often. A little bit of HIIT training is good, but too much HIIT training could actually weaken the immune system. And I find this fascinating. When I got, when I got Dr. Etnier's P, you know, CV, her PR person reached out to me, they're promoting the book and promoting her research, and I saw what she worked on, and I thought it was fascinating. She works, she studies the cognitive function, how exercise enhances cognitive function, and she's also written the books on coaching. I thought that was a really kind of fascinating, I don't want to say duality, but a fascinating couple of, of subjects that I'd like to have on the podcast. Now, before I go any further, I'll give you a couple ideas to wrap up of, of how to apply this information. I do want to talk about the minimum guidelines. You have ACSM, which is the American College of Sports Medicine. But the guidelines I'm going to refer to, and, and Jenny referenced this, we know that exercise is important, and then this is an important document, and, and keep in mind that nobody's going to do anything just because the federal government says, especially not the current occupant of, of, of the, the White House, of the federal government. But there's a very important document. It was first published in 2008. It was updated in 2018. The document's by the Department of Health and Human Services. And it's the physical activity guidelines. And actually, I'll, I'll put a link to that down below in the show notes as well. But what the physical activity guidelines do, is, it's, the, it's HHS, Department of Health and Human Services. It's their research showing, and this is important language, the document, the physical activity guidelines say, and you heard, me, you heard Jenny and I talk about the research, they say that exercise will prevent a number of chronic diseases. And that's important language from a government body. But the physical activity guidelines put forward by the HHS, Department of Health and Human Services, are are very similar to the American College of Sports Medicine. The guidelines are this. To receive minimal benefits from exercise, you should be doing 150 minutes a week. That's 150 minutes a week. That's two and a half hours a week of moderate intensity exercise. Think of moderate intensity exercise as breathing quickly. Low intensity exercise, you can have a conversation while you're exercising. As soon as you start exercising quicker, your body will shift to using carbohydrate as a fuel. Talking becomes limited. Moderate intensity exercise, meaning it'd be difficult to have a conversation. High intensity exercise, you can only say one or two words at a time. The guidelines are 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity exercise 
or 75 weeks, 75 minutes, 150 minutes a week of moderate or 75 minutes of high intensity exercise or vigorous exercise are enough to provide health benefits. And 75 minutes a week broken down over, over five days is about 15 minutes a day. It is 15 minutes a day. 150 minutes a week broken down over five days is 30 minutes a day. And keep in mind, there's a lot of research out there. There's something called exercise light, meaning being active for five to 10 minutes at a time. So if you're one of those people that, oh my goodness, I don't have time. You know, we've had all the time in the world the last couple of months. As we're getting back to our regular schedule, though, if you're in an area where the COVID restrictions are lifting and you're getting back to your regular schedule, keep in mind, walking for 10 minutes at a time three times a day provides that 30 minutes of minimum guidelines. And that's for health benefits. Obviously, if you want to burn calories, if you have specific goals, you need to do more work. But for the work that Jenny's done on exercise supporting cognitive health, and again, this is the point of this podcast. I want you to understand how to use exercise to manage the aging process. That's why I'm doing this podcast. And if you want to know how you should be exercising, you can pick up a copy of my book, Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. I teach you everything you need to know about designing exercise programs. If you want to just do exercise programs, I have them available. I have eight-week workout programs available for a little bit less than $20. All that's down below in the show notes. Or you can go to PeteMcCallFitness.com. If you go to PeteMcCallFitness.com and you sign up for my mailing list, I'll send you a chapter from Smarter Workouts along with a workout that you can start doing, the bodyweight workout that you can start doing right away. And that's the important thing, right? Exercise, we think about, you know, we always think about exercise as appearance. We think about exercise as weight loss. We think about exercise as getting big muscles. But as we age, exercise maintains health. Exercise can reduce the risk of a number of chronic diseases. Exercise, yes, can maintain a healthy body weight. And most importantly, exercise really can enhance cognitive function. Now, one of the things you heard me kind of mention, you heard me mention high-intensity exercise. I just wrote an article on the benefits of high-intensity exercise for older adults. And I don't think, and I'm not, there's no offense to, to Dr. Etnier, I just there's a lot more research coming out in the last two to five years on the benefits of high-intensity exercise for the older population. For years, research, you know, researchers did not want to push. For years, for years, researchers were concerned about, as Jenny mentioned, pushing older adults too hard. However, some of the research has come out and some research has been done has found that older exercise, like a lot of people, older adults, like a lot of people, would prefer to do 10 or 15 minutes of high-intensity exercise compared to 30 or 40 minutes of lower-intensity exercise. So there has been links to, and there has been research looking at high-intensity exercise for older adults. Now, keep in mind, that's not making somebody do five minutes in a row of all-out sprints, not at all. They're talking about 10 to 30-second work intervals followed by a two- to three-minute recovery interval. Again, that's about a 10 to 30 second, really hard, really getting out of breath in 10 to 30 seconds, and then working at a steady state where breathing is normal for about three or four minutes. I'll link down below again to, to one or two studies that I've read recently about the benefits of higher intensity exercise for an older adult population. This is all, this is relatively new research. It's actually what I'm writing my next book on. I have smarter workouts, and the next book I'm writing is called Ageless Intensity. I'm about a third of the way through it right now, compiling all the research about the benefits of high-intensity exercise and slowing down the aging process. 
There it is. I just wanted to share with you. What I wanted to do is share with you the minimum guidelines for exercise, meaning how can you can use exercise to promote health benefits, how you can use exercise to enhance cognitive benefits. I don't know about you. I've had, I had a relative who had Parkinson's and then she had dementia and it really was, it really was hard to watch to see how she aged and to see how she declined as, as both the Parkinson's and dementia set in. And really, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. I really wouldn't. But what we can do, you know, what you can do if you're concerned about that, again, they don't know. There's a lot of stuff about genetics. I ask that question about lifestyle. If you're from a family with a lot of negative lifestyle habits, how's that, you know, how does that trump genetics? I mean, and what, what Jenny was saying is that starting activity, and I've seen this research too, starting activity can change it. So if you're concerned about your cognitive state as you get older, if you're in your 50s or 60s and you're concerned, wow, what's going to happen to me as I, as I age? You know what? Start, that's a reason to start exercising. You know, who cares? If you're a little bit older, who cares about six-pack abs? Who cares about beach muscles? Be healthy and think about the, the aging benefits of how exercise can manage the aging process. That's what the point of this podcast is all about. That's why when I saw Jenny's CV, I saw her description come across my email box. I knew she was somebody that I really wanted to speak to for the podcast. I got a lot out of the conversation. I found it fascinating. I, I always love this topic. I always geek out on it. I Hopefully, you found it fascinating as well. If you want to support the podcast, you have a couple different options. One, it doesn't cost you anything. You can reach down, give it a great review. The reviews help other people find All About Fitness. And if you want content, I have content available, All About Fitness Podcast on the YouTube channel. That's All About Fitness Podcast YouTube channel, a bunch of workouts up there. I have PeteMcCallFitness.com. You can go there, get free content there. And if you want to support the, the podcast, you can buy a workout. You can buy my ebook, Dynamic Anatomy. I have two other ebooks I'm finishing up production on. And I'm also coming out with a couple of little education courses that can help you learn how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. So stick with me through All About Fitness, and I will help you learn how to use exercise to manage the aging process so that you can enjoy everything that you want to do as we all get a little bit older. And with that, as always, oh, whoops, let me, if you want to reach out to me, Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com, Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. You can always catch me on Instagram, PeteMcCall underscore fitness. That's PeteMcCall underscore fitness. And as always, thanks for stopping by, and I'll look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.